On this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast, we talk about the Shroud of Turin, Eternal Security, and Dave Gass's departure from the faith. Join us now as we enter into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now join your host, Brian Chilton, as we enter the arena of ideas. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of classic apologetics while entering into the arena of ideas, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is yours truly, Brian Chilton. Starting the program off with a little bit of the uh, soundtrack from the Avengers Endgame, and uh, this past weekend, I uh, didn't know if uh, my wife and son were going to be interested in seeing it or not. Uh, my son is just really uh, starting to uh, get an interest in Marvel Comics. He's, of course, he's been interested in it for a while, but uh, he hasn't been a uh, you know necessarily what you would say a huge fan. Of course, I guess I'm a comic nerd for. Uh, for all of us, quite frankly, but uh, I went to go see it Friday with my parents, not knowing that uh, he really wanted to see the movie as well, and so we all had a chance to go see the movie this Saturday, and uh, so I had the uh, I had the opportunity of seeing the movie twice, <laughs> which turned out good for me, and so I'm not complaining about that one bit. It is a uh, long movie. I won't give any spoilers. I won't be that guy uh, to do that to you because it is a wonderful movie. And it is, uh, in, in my honest opinion, I've heard uh, some people, of course, there, there are always going to be uh, critiques to any movie, especially when it's talking about a genre that you really care about uh, when it comes to Star Wars. Uh, those who are interested in Star Wars are, of course, going to be overly critical of Star Wars movies. And, and those of us who are Avenge, uh, Marvel fans, uh, which I was a comic book fan, a Marvel comic book fan, even as a kid. So obviously there are critiques that could be made. But all in all, I thought it was a well-made movie. I thought it was uh, well-executed, well-done. And uh, in my honest opinion, uh, it was one of the best 
Marvel comic movies uh, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe to date. I do wish, however, you know, I, I am a uh, an Incredible Hulk fan, and I do wish they would make a good movie with the Incredible Hulk. Uh, it's it's amazing to me because the the Hulk movies that's been out there, they did have the one that was better made. Uh, the later the the Incredible Hulk movie was better than the first Hulk movie by Lee Ang, uh, but. Uh, uh, you know they they had they did have a major character in the Incredible Hulk as he fought the Abomination, which was a, a big rival of the Hulk in the comics. But it's amazing to me that they haven't brought the chief villain in uh, the Hulk series, and that's uh, a comic book character known as the Leader. They they've never introduced him. There was a little snippet at the end of the Incredible Hulk movie that seemed to suggest they were going to bring him on. But but it never it never uh, came about. So a little disappointed in that regard. But um, but anyhow, uh, I, I digress. <laughs> Move on. I, I'll get over it. I put my I put my uh, my big boy big boy pants on and uh, and and go on and uh, go on about it. Anyhow, nonetheless. So today is going to be kind of a variety show. I uh, was going to. Uh, Post a podcast last week, but unfortunately, uh, due to events beyond my control, I uh, was unable to get the podcast out. So, um, so we're going to uh, kind of have a variety show talking about three topics uh, t- today about about this. So, um, so uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the Shroud of Turin. We're going to talk a little bit about. Uh, uh, eternal security and uh, reasons why uh, I believe in eternal security, and then we're also going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, the, uh, an evangelical, an ex-evangelical, uh, someone who left the church ministry and someone who um, left the faith as well. So uh, we'll talk about that in a lot more on today's podcast. Again, this is Brian Chilton. Don't know if I said that or not. Uh, we do thank you. Hope you're having a good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you're listening to this podcast. We are glad that you found the podcast. Just want to remind you that the Bellator Christie podcast is a production of bellatorchristie.com. So we do encourage you to go over to bellatorchristie.com. Be sure to check out the website. Be sure to share any articles or any of these um podcast that you find helpful and uh, if you haven't done so already of course be sure to subscribe to both if you are listening to this podcast on uh, one of the different apps that's available we ask that if you will uh, take time to leave a positive review that'll help us to be able to get the uh, information out more effectively and efficiently uh, so that others can find this podcast and enjoy uh, any of the material that you may find helpful there as well so we're going to first start off with the shroud of turin i want to give a few comments. I, I was on Phil Fernandez's uh, page on his Facebook social media account, and he was uh, bringing up some information about the Shroud of Turin. Now, before we get into this, I want to explain what the Shroud of Turin is. Unless you, if you are a um, unless you are just a stranger to the podcast, you've heard me mention the Shroud of Turin before. The Shroud of Turin uh, is uh, thought to be the burial cloth of uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ, and uh, it is a linen cloth. Uh, don't have the dimensions with me right off the hand. You can look it up if you, you know, if you like, if you're interested in it. Uh, but it does bear the uh, image of Je- of a crucified man, and. Um, as uh, Phil Fernandez was saying, his and actually I even mentioned this as well that according to uh, research done on the shroud, it's it's been deemed that the image on the shroud is not a painting. Whatever it is, it's not a painting. Uh, it's and it, it seems to be according to uh, what the research indicates, it it seems to be burn marks. Quite honestly, left by something leaving a high dose of radiation. The um, the markings, the, the blood st- stains on the cloth have been shown to be authentic blood. They've taken DNA analysis uh, of the blood. It has been deemed to be uh, authentic uh, type AB blood hemoglobin. Uh, they've deemed that it is a uh, comes from a human being and a male. That's about the only thing they can they can determine about the blood. But it does uh, it does um, match what one would uh, consider to have have happened during the time of uh, during the crucifixion so um but there are many individuals uh, even christian individuals who gave 
uh, negative feedback concerning the shroud. And I wanted to, to address uh, two or three of the uh, the objections to the shroud. In fact, uh, the fourth, uh, the four four objections that were given to the shroud. And just comment about this a little bit because there were there were some people that already left some comments on on his uh, on Phil Fernandez's social media page. But I just want to give a few comments, uh, some con- thoughts that I had concerning uh, the objections that Christians were giving pertaining to the shroud. Let me just go ahead and say first and foremost, though, as we begin this, if the shroud is not Jesus of Nazareth's, then it has no effect. It has no bearing on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. You have plenty enough evidence without the shroud to, to uh, verify the fact that Jesus was risen from the dead on the first Easter, period. The manuscript evidence alone is sufficient to, to show that uh, Jesus of Nazareth walked out of the tomb on that first Easter Sunday, that he was risen from the dead. And so uh, manuscript evidence alone is strong enough to verify that it happened. Uh, there, are, there are many other evidences, as you could talk about, the psychological effect, the early, uh, the early aspect of the preaching of the resurrection, and the fact that it came in Jerusalem, uh, in the very city where Jesus was crucified, that the tomb was found empty. All these other things accumulate to make a strong case historically for the resurrection without the shroud. But if the shroud is indeed legitimate, um, and it is the burial cloth of Jesus, then that is really a, a grand slam. You know, we already have a home run, but it makes the home run into a grand slam because then you have additional evidence that shows the uh, the actual image of Jesus indicating the fact that he did raise from the dead and that uh, seemingly indicated that he came through the cloth, that there was some type of high dose of radiation, that uh, something like 13,000... Um, was it 13,000 watts, or 13 trillion watts is what it was, 13 trillion watts to produce the image. We don't have the power to do that now, and they certainly didn't have the power to do that in the first century by naturalistic means. So, again, if this is indeed the burial cloth of Jesus, which is it's going to be impossible to verify that it is 100% unless you have the name Jesus of Nazareth written on the shroud and it identifies it as being the authentic burial cloth, but there are many other reasons to believe that it is. In fact, uh, the, the dating of 1988, uh, which deemed that the uh, the shroud was a medieval forgery, was flawed. It was completely flawed, uh, and that, that has been shown not only by uh, Christians, but by non-Christians who have verified that, that, uh, that the dating uh, process was taken from a horrible place. Uh, on the shroud, um, and there are many reasons to many other reasons to dismiss the carbon dating, but nonetheless, um, but looking at the Christian objections, uh, there were four main primary objections that came about in this conversation. One one person said the shroud does not match the description of Jesus's burial from John's Gospel. Well, I've noticed this on an article, or it was on a podcast or something here recently, so I won't go into to it in depth. But all John's Gospel tells us is that that is the presence of linens uh, that, that wrap the body and a head cloth. Okay, John, even if the body were wrapped in linens. Okay, it could still have been wrapped in a in a shroud. Okay, many people in the first century they used shrouds to bury their dead. That's not to say that it couldn't have still have been wound around, uh, wound wound about by other linens. It may have been that uh, that that uh, that there was a shroud and maybe another cloth underneath it. For all we know, I, I don't know. One of the things we have to remember, though, is that the 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 early Christians, the women, and Joseph of Arimathea did not have time to properly anoint the body of Jesus. Okay? They didn't have enough time to anoint his body. So so they were in a mad dash to get him down off the cross, to get him placed in the tomb, to get him halfway halfway semi or you know, semi um uh, placed in the tomb. So it's not like they had time to wind to wind his body up with these different linen cloths. That may have been the plan. But certainly they didn't have time to go about all the entire process that they would normally do because they, that's the whole point and reason why they came back to the tomb on that first Easter Sunday. So there again, I don't think that, that John, uh, what John tells us is, is um, adequate enough to dismiss 
the shroud. Now he tells us a lot. He gives us a lot of detailed information. But what I'm saying, as far as it goes, as the existence of the shroud or the non-existence of the shroud, I just don't think we have enough evidence from John's gospel to say that the shroud wasn't there. In fact, one of the things we do tell, can tell from John's gospel, is that there were there were many different cloths uh, that were used to bury. Jesus, the shroud could have easily been one of those cloths that wrapped his body. So um, I don't think that objection holds. Secondly, one of the biggest objections that I found uh, from Christians uh, had to do that the about with the image of the man on the shroud that he had long hair. Okay, this seems to be, have been one of the biggest objections. Uh, they they make the point to say that Jesus would not have had long hair. Okay. Well, that's not necessarily true. First, the modern precedent concerning long hair is an American trend, okay? Some Jewish men would have most certainly had long hair, which would have included one John the Baptist who took the Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow said that you could not cut your hair. Samson would have had long hair. Okay, that's where he got his strength. was well, not from the hair, but from the Holy Spirit. That, um, But he got his power from the covenant agreement that he had with God, from the Holy Spirit empowering him, he had long hair. He had really long hair, quite honestly. Um, so, Jesus didn't necessarily take the Nazarite vow, okay? But, the, for someone who is an itinerant preacher, who, who was just as most rabbis would have done in the ancient times, especially around Galilee, he, he would have been preaching his message to several different cities and several different towns in the first century for three and a half years. Do you honestly think that as he is traveling that he would have had time to carry with him uh, a, a pair of scissors to cut his hair to keep it really short? I don't think so. Uh, it's not like there would have been a barber on every street corner where he went to, to cut his hair. Okay, he was an itinerant preacher. He traveled long distances. Most of the time he walked wherever he went. He wouldn't have had time to do this. Okay, he wouldn't have had time to keep his hair buzz cut or anything of the sort. Um, so this is, again, a poor excuse. It's, it's actually, I think, somewhat anachronistic to, to superimpose our views of hairstyles back on to Jesus of the first century. So um, now some people will say, well, what about when Paul talks about uh, long hair being disgraceful to a man? Well, understand this. Part of, part of what's going on in Paul's letters is, first and foremost, we have to understand that Paul was not writing to us in 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 our century. He was not writing to us. Now, don't get me wrong. The Bible is inspired. I believe it's inspired, infallible, inerrant. I believe that, all that, and a bag of chips. Okay, I believe that. All right, I hold to that. But understand this. The original intent behind the letters of Paul was not directed towards us in modern the United, modern United States of America, in the church of the United States of America. Okay, it wasn't written to us. It was written to these various different churches. And there were different customs. Hairstyles meant different things. In fact, the, a man's hair worn a certain way would indicate certain things about who he was, especially in the Corinthian society, in, in Greek and in Asia Minor. Uh, there were certain hairstyles that were used, employed in certain areas, worn certain ways that would indicate that the person was a male prostitute. Okay, a lot of times if it was worn in a braid or worn up in a, like a ponytail or was long worn up in a ponytail, sometimes it would indicate that that individual was a male prostitute. So there again, I think there is a cultural aspect to what Paul is saying. I don't think it's universal. Now, I think what he is saying that a man should look like a man and a woman should look like a woman. Okay, I do think he's probably saying something like that. Now that may not be kosher in in our PC society, but I do think that's part of what he's saying. I do think he's saying that a man should look like a man and a woman should look like a woman. But if a person has shoulder length hair and is a man, uh, or if a woman has short hair, that doesn't mean that she's mannish and the and the man who has long hair is is you know is a femaleish or or feminine or anything like that. 
what he's basically saying is he's speaking to the culture of the time. So again, I don't think I think that is also anachronistic to superimpose what Paul is saying to the Church of Corinth and these other churches onto Jesus and the culture of first century Israel. So again, I don't think that that objection holds. The third objection is the trial would have broken God's command, uh, commandment not to create images pertaining to himself. Now this, I've heard something similar to this. This is not one of the normal objections that you that you hear about with a shroud, but I do think it, it warrants um, it's, um, some, um, some attention. Uh, God combated idolatry. Okay, and, and human beings have, have an uncanny inherent ability, or not good to to take something material and and to deify it. Okay, you think back about Exodus and the golden calf. Mo, Moses was up on Mount Sinai. No sooner had he gone up to Mount Sinai, he comes back down the mountain after getting the commandments. What have the people done? They they made a golden calf. Okay, and that's just human nature. We we want to elevate and we want to worship material things rather than the spiritual divine being that is God. Okay? We have to have something tangible. Okay. So but 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 think about this. If you press that image if you press that commandment too far, would not Jesus having come as a human being not broken the the uh, commandment of uh, setting up an image towards himself because he was a very visible image that people saw. Okay, I don't think it was. I think what God is doing in that commandment is He is telling us. I don't think it has anything to do with artwork. I don't think it has anything to do with statues. I don't think it has anything to do with that. I think He is basically saying, "Don't turn material things into God." And beloved, I would tell you this: we do this all the time with our material possessions. We we try to deify our material possessions, whether it's vehicles, whether it's clothing, whether it's a computer, whether it's a hairstyle, whatever the case may be, or even if it's politics. Anything we place above God becomes idolatry, and idolatry is adultery against God, simply put. Okay, so I don't think this is a good objection because if God is leaving behind an apologetic methodology, if He is leaving behind this this artifact bearing forth the existence of his son, showing forth that his son rose from the dead, if that is genuinely what the shroud is, then I think that is an, an apologetic for the faith, and it's not anything that should be uh, dismissed, quite frankly. Fourthly, uh, I heard, uh, and this this is actually uh, in, in talking with the person, I understood where the person was coming from due to the ministry that the person has, and I won't go into any more detail than that. Uh, but but I did find that this was an interesting interesting critique. Uh, the, the person said that God would not use radiation to create the shroud, that God would not use energy. And I, and I asked the question, why not? Uh, God created radiation, okay? God, God works in the world all the time. And, and I think there was a concern about New Age philosophy and talking about energy and stuff like that. But I do think that we have to be careful with going too far to, to either extreme on this regard because I do think that a spirit is a personal, eternal energy. Okay? It is not a tangible thing. It is, a, it is an energy. Okay? Uh, and God is spirit. Now, for him to be real, he... he he it must be a real thing, okay? So, and he he also for forgot to say for us to say that God interacts with creation. Then obviously, he interacts with the world using physical things to to do bring about certain certain events and certain things, okay? So, again, God created radiation. God created everything there is in existence. So I don't see the problem again with this. So again, as I mentioned before, the shroud is not necessary to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, but if it is genuine, the shroud is a wondrous archaeological tool that God has given us to to illustrate the authenticity of Jesus of Nazareth's resurrection. And I think that is an incredible tool that we have and one that we should use. Okay? Because it seems to me, at least, and, and for those not these pop uh, internet sites that, that that try to dismiss it on some weird term. But for those who have truly investigated the shroud, there just seems to be more and more evidence to suggest 
that uh, the shroud is in fact that of Jesus's. And it's interesting. There was a uh, there's a man who works for uh, I believe it's called Sturp. Is that right? Um, the uh, I think it's Sturp, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, the Shroud of Turin Research Project, and um, let me look here. And, and it was is Raymond Rogers is on there. That's not the guy I'm looking for. Um, anyhow, there's a Jewish man who is uh, Barry Schwartz. This is the guy, Barry Schwartz. I believe this is this is the guy. He is a Jewish individual. And actually accepts the Turin Shroud to be the authentic burial cloth of Jesus. He's worked extensively with this, uh, with this um, shroud, and and has has, uh, has basically said um, that it is. I mean, you have guys like a nuclear physicist Tom D. D. Muhalla. Uh, who headed STIRP, um, and uh, it included includes uh, thermal chemists Raymond Rogers and Ron London and many others um, who who have worked on on the STIRP committee. And so, um, well, for instance, here in 1981, in its final report, STIRP wrote, "We can conclude for now that the shroud image is that of a real human form of a scourged, crucified man. It is not the product of an artist." Uh, the blood stains are composed of hemoglobin and also give a positive test for serum albumin. The image is an ongoing mystery, and until further chemical studies are made, perhaps by this group of scientists or perhaps by some scientists in the future, the problem remains unsolved. And quite frankly, it has continued to stupefy individuals for for decades since then. So again, I don't think you can just dismiss it um, flippantly. Uh, there's something unique about this shroud and for me personally I can't speak for anyone else I think the shroud of Turin is the authentic burial cloth of Jesus of Nazareth now if it's shown tomorrow to absolutely be a forgery that it's not whatsoever anything linked to Jesus of Nazareth that's not going to shake my faith because I still will believe in the resurrection but I believe due to the evidence of the shroud of Turin the mounting evidence of the Shroud of Turin, I think we have every reason to believe that it is, in fact, the burial cloth of Jesus. I'm going to take a few moments, and we'll take a quick commercial break. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about eternal security and uh, give a few comments concerning Dave Gass and his departure from the faith. You're listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. Some say the best Bible translation is the one that's most literal, word for word, through and through. But there's not always a direct English translation of ancient words. So others say the best Bible translation should favor readability, thought for thought, holding on to the same meaning. But we can all agree that the very best Bible translation is one you trust and one that you want to read. One that stirs your heart and moves you to share its truth. The Christian Standard Bible has been shown to be an optimal blend of accuracy and readability compared to other leading translations. The very best balance, faithfulness to the original text, and clear language that connects to the heart. After all, it's not so much about changing your Bible translation, but about seeing the Bible change your life. Point your heart to true north. The Christian Standard Bible. The Christian Standard Bible is the official translation of BellatorChristi.com. Go pick up your translation of the CSB today. The brilliant insight you need to make a difference can start right now. That's why Liberty University Online brings more than 160 affordable degree programs, superior academics, and exceptional student support to your corner of the world, offering you a world-class education with a Christian worldview. Online, 
So wherever your vision is taking you today, you can begin to shine brighter. We're back on the uh, Bellator Christie podcast, and we thank you for joining us uh, today. And so, we want to talk about uh, eternal security. And I uh, had a couple of uh, uh, comments, a couple of questions on the website. I want to read this uh, as we move forward. Uh, this is from Just for Now, and uh, this says, um, "This is Dear Pastor Brian Shelton. I sent an email about eternal security." And uh, says uh, about an hour or two ago, but I also wanted to ask a few questions about Matthew 10, 37 through 39. Um, it says, Whosoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whosoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whosoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Is anyone really worthy of Jesus? What is meant by not worthy of me? Uh, can you please comment on these verses mentioned above? And if a Christian loves his father and mother more than Jesus, can he still go to heaven? Uh, if a Christian does not take up his cross and follow Jesus, can he still go to heaven? Can you also comment a bit on whosoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it? I hope you can help. God bless. All right, also another question. Uh, can you please recommend some books that defend eternal security? And um, Okay, so there were some questions that uh, just for now mentioned uh, uh, brought forth uh, previously concerning eternal security. Curious as to eternal security. Let me first of all say that uh, I affirm eternal security, and uh, there are some reasons why I do. Um, there, there are some individuals who I great, whom I greatly respect who, who hold to a version of eternal assurance that um, is... Um, is basically one that says that uh, that we have security in our faith, but it's possible to recant our faith and lose our faith, as as opposed to individuals, some individuals who say, well, if you could do that, then you never really had it. And that's a big that's a big question mark. I'll grant you, it can get very complicated. In fact, one of the things that we'll talk about a little bit later makes you wonder. But uh, John ten twenty eight and twenty nine. Jesus says that uh, I give life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. 1 John 5.13 says, These things I write to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so, uh, Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So I think all of this shows us that, um, that, that, that when we enter into a relationship with Jesus, uh, we are indeed born again. In fact, John 3.3 says, Truly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It means born from above. There's a spiritual birth that happens in the life of an individual whenever they come to Christ. Uh, it means their, their lives are transformed. They have a new connectiveness with heaven that they did not before through the personal holy presence of God, which we know to be the Holy Spirit. Uh, so there's a new connectiveness that a person has. Uh, Jesus also promises that uh, he will never leave us, he'll never forsake us uh, as well. So uh, eternal security is something I think that holds biblical support. And in addition, I think that you have to ask yourself the question, when it comes to concerning eternal security, who saves whom? Are we saved by our works or are we saved by the grace of God? And if it's by the grace of God, then salvation is a gift that God grants unto us, that he imparts unto us. So if that's the case, then at least it's the way I see it, I don't know that we could override something that God has done for us. Now, I do believe we have the freedom to respond to the grace of God or reject the grace of God. Um, and so there's that aspect of it. But there again, I don't think that, uh, I think if true, someone is truly born again, I don't think that they're going to want to give up the relationship that they have with Christ uh, in the first place. So 
that's kind of the way I see it. I, I you know I don't know there may be some some other things that we could consider regarding that, but it, at least in my mind, I, I just really don't see how anyone would dismiss their relationship with Christ um, unless there's some type of emotional mess going on um, that that leads them to do that. Now I rejected my faith for seven years, but God brought me back. And I do think that there are times in our lives where we may backslide, where we may uh, stray from the faith that we had in Him. But if a person's truly saved, uh, they'll be brought back. They'll be brought back to faith, whether they, whether they, you know, they will. I, I really truly believe that. I was, at least. And so, you know, many others um, um, have as well. Now, as far as books pertaining to eternal security, one book I would encourage you to read, which has all the different viewpoints pertaining to uh, eternal security, is the Counterpoint series on this very issue. It's called Four Views on Eternal Security. Uh, you can I'm actually looking right now at Thrift Books that has a uh, used, like new edition for $544. Uh, $5.44. So, uh, my goodness, I mean, it's a great price. If I didn't already have the book now, I'd get it myself. But this is a good book. This is going to give you a perspective from four different aspects, from four different uh, 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 prominent viewpoints on uh, in Christianity. There's the classical Calvinist, or the strong Calvinist, that you might want to call that. Uh, I think that is, I uh, can't read the name right offhand, Um because I don't have I don't have the book in, in front of me, but uh, uh, Michael Horton uh, he presents the traditional Calvinist views. Uh, the um, let's see gives Horton's take on that, but again I, I can't see the uh, can't see the make out the names. I think Norman Geisler is the next guy who is going to defend the moderate Calvinist view. So it's a, a softer version of Calvinism, really closely more closely akin to Molinism. There's the Reformed Armenian view. Uh, this is the remonstrant version of Armenianism or classical Armenianism that basically says that it's possible that a person could recant their faith, but if they do, then they couldn't be resaved. And then the Wesleyan-Armenian view, is basically, which basically says you may deny your faith, but if you did deny it, you can come back into the fold. Uh, so anyhow, that's a book I would encourage. There's other other books written. Charles Stanley, I think, wrote a book on eternal security. Uh, I'm just looking down. Uh, it looks like... Uh, uh, let's see, Arthur Pink wrote a book on this. H.A. Ironside wrote a book on this. Um, you know, there are many others. So, you know, just just go on Google. Look for some, some key names in, in that regard, and, uh, you know, hopefully that'll, that'll help you. I would definitely get the book, though, on the four views on eternal security so that you can look through the different perspectives as you make up your mind. Compare the arguments and see which makes the strongest case, especially toward you know with scripture. Um, see which view makes the strongest case in your opinion. So that's what I would encourage you to do: is to look at the Counterpoints book and uh, and go from there. Now, having mentioned that, I am um, on a Facebook uh, group, uh, which is which is a Facebook group of mainly Baptists, and someone posted this um, about a gentleman by the name of Dave Gass. Um, I've never heard of him before, to be honest with you, and uh, um, I, he was a former pastor. Um, uh, trying to look and see if I find anything. Um, you know, I, I really don't see a whole lot about him, though, to, to be honest with you. Uh, but he is uh, he is a former pastor. I know that part. He's a former pastor. Um, he was a senior pastor at Grace Family Fellowship. Uh, he, um, I think, pastored many churches. In fact, I, I was told he was a pretty good pastor at that. Um, but he has on Twitter uh, recently announced, and this is coming from his Twitter account, he says, I'm not a Christian anymore, colon a thread. After 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from faith. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it has been decades in the making. Okay, so notice there, decades in the making. Okay, what is it? 
that that is was leading Dave in this direction. Now he goes on another uh, on another tweet. He mentions how that uh, he found, in his opinion, similarities to the mythology of of Greek mythology and that of Scripture. Okay, and and it even says that he even dabbled with you know Christian apologetics. You know. To me, I really wonder how deep he went in the Christian apologetics. But then again, you know, there, there are people, you know, you can look at the same data and come to different conclusions. Okay, so it may be that he was an apologetics. I, I don't know. Um, but it, it is interesting. A day ago, he says uh, that he's receiving an insane amount of of follows um, and, and direct messages, uh, you know. And so, um, anyhow, he said... Um, he says, shame, isolation, and fear begins to dissipate the moment you put all of your painful and embarrassing expletive on the table and someone says, me too. And uh, so basically he is you know, basically going out. And one of the things, he, one of the, I was trying to find it here. One of the comments I did see on his Twitter account that I found very intriguing is that he initially was planning on leaving the pastorate. And he, I think he had some marital problems according to what he posted on there. He had some other things he was dealing with. But the moment he put it on there, he began to be attacked by the church. And then when that happened, apparently, uh, he said that he made the jump over to reject his faith altogether. I, I uh, it, it, it's, you know, I, one of the cautions, and, and I was seeing this on the Baptist group, and I've, and I've seen this in some other comments, one of the things that we as Christians need to do in these cases or actually what we don't need to do. There's something we need to do and don't need to do. We need to show love and compassion to individuals who are struggling with their faith. We need to show love and compassion to those who are struggling with their faith. We don't need to throw them under the bus. We don't need to attack them and belittle them. For some reason, and I don't know why, but we as Christians have the habit of viciously attacking one another, and especially someone who's struggling. You know, I read a post, and I was going to even mention mention this in, in Sunday's message, that there are five groups of people that are often alienated in churches. One, divorcees. Two, um, widows. Three, uh, I found this fascinating. Families who had lost an individual in their family due to suicide, they were usually uh, ostracized for whatever reason. Those who had dealt with sexual sins and widows. Did I say widows? I can't remember if I said widows or not. But there are those five, those five categories of individuals. Um, divorcees. Those dealing with uh, those dealing with sexual sins, uh, they're often ostracized and. Um, widowers, uh, families of suicide, and, uh, and I even think that you can, oh yeah, special needs individuals, that's the one I left out, special needs individuals, and that really shocked me as well. But I think you can also add those who doubt, those who have struggles with their faith. It seems like to me that we start attacking individuals who have the slightest bit of doubt in their mind. Understand, that is not the way we need to handle ourselves. Jesus lovingly, when the rich young ruler came to him, he, he he told him the truth. But when the gentleman decided to go, he lovingly let him go. And the Bible tells us in Mark's gospel that Jesus loved the, the young ruler. He really wanted him to be part of the, his disciples. But he left because he chose money over over um, discipleship. And that, that brings me back to a question that just for now mentioned that I need to go back to, that, that hopefully if I remember I'll get back to before the end of the podcast. But I think another thing we need to do as a church is we need to pray for those who are struggling. Pray for individuals who are struggling in this regard. Folks, I'm going to tell you what, quite honestly, the pastorate is a difficult position. I have the sneaking suspicion after reading this, that his doubts are probably more emotionally charged than intellectually driven. I, 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 he said he had marital problems, he had family problems. 
he, he claims that he prayed for individuals and didn't see people healed. Now, I can tell you that I can tell you firsthand that's not been the case with me. Not that I have any special power in my prayers. I'm not saying that, but I've seen God work miracles. Okay, um, I have a little bit of a little reservation in that regard, but 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 concerning his comment, I mean, because I think God is actively working. You know, whether we see it immediately or not, God is actively working in all cases. Yeah, but I'm like him. He he said he's been praying for individuals and see people pass away even still. Yeah, that's happened to me too. But there again, we're not promised. We're not promised. If God answered every single one of our prayers with uh, individuals who were who were who were sick, then no one would ever die. And you know, and really, if we have an eternal perspective, then then heaven's going to be even greater than anything we can ever think or imagine anyhow. And if that's the case then you know we should be excited about that heavenly existence. We should be excited about our life here on earth and live it to its fullest. I'm not saying that, but we it's a win-win situation. We can enjoy this life, live it to the fullest, and we can also look forward and anticipate the heavenly home we have with Christ. It's a win-win situation. I really, as I said before, I really have the sneaking suspicion that his doubts are emotionally driven. I think is he's hurt. I think he, he the marriage problems that he had. I think is uh, is he's probably struggling with that. And I would just go back and say the pastorate is very difficult. People in the pews often do not understand the emotional and spiritual toll that comes with this position. And I'm not trying to have a pity party for myself or any other pastor. I'm just saying it's just the way it is, you know. And I've often thought about uh, to to be quite honest about when in my 50s whether I need to retire by that time and you know I'm just going to follow the Lord's leadership if it's the Lord's will for me to retire from pastoral ministry in my 50s I will you know there are other there there are multiple ministries out there and multiple needs out there where God can use us to do multiple things and it may be that what Dave needed was a sabbatical from ministry that may be what he needs you know but um I don't believe God's done with Dave just yet. And I think what we need to do as a people of God is we need to pray for Dave. Okay, We don't need to attack him. We, we need to pray for him. And we need to lovingly, if you're friends with Dave on social media, lovingly tell him that you're praying for him, that you care about him, and go that route. Don't attack him for heaven's sakes. Love him. Show him how much you care. And, and earnestly pray that God uh, will lead him back to the fold. And, and you know, there again, I think it's very possible that God might just, just do that very thing. Let me say, let me get uh, to one more comment. I actually meant to do this previously before I went into talking about Dave Gass. He um, said, uh, talking about Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Okay, and it's basically asking if you don't love Christ more than uh, than family, does that mean that you're not saved? Well, what I would just basically say to this is, is, is Jesus is using a teaching methodology here. He's he's using a teaching methodology where he's using comparison, and and uh, and he is certainly not telling an individual not to love their family. Okay, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Now, in rabbinical culture, it was anticipated that individuals love their rabbis just at, at a level, their teachers, their pastoral teachers, at the level of being like a parent. So they actually became part of the family in a matter of speaking so but jesus is not saying that a person shouldn't love their family and paul even says in, in the in the scriptures i think was it second timothy first second timothy that anyone who does not take care of the needs of their own home especially of their own household has neglected the faith and is worse than an unbeliever that comes from paul the apostle paul got his teaching information he got his material from jesus okay so, yes, we are absolutely supposed to love our families. But the, the question mark is, the, the thing that Jesus is, is mentioning is that when we understand his identity as being God, we should elevate the love that we have for him. What that basically is saying is that the love that we have for God should eclipse the love that we have for anything else on earth. Because it is possible to make an idol 
even out of our families. And we certainly don't want to do that. We've got to put our families high on the totem pole. But it's supposed to be God comes first, then your families, then help others, and then help yourself. Okay? So, so yeah, family is very important. And so, uh, but what he's basically simply doing, what the main message of Jesus is in that passage of Scripture, is that the love that you have for God should eclipse, it should eclipse the love that you have for anything else. Okay. He, again, he's using a teaching style that's using comparison in that regard. Taking up the cross. Uh, okay, if you don't take up your cross and follow me, you're not you're not worthy. So the question is, uh, the uh, just for now asks, if you don't take up your cross and follow Jesus, then does that mean you're not saved? Well, here's the thing: if you if you stand for Jesus, if you stand for God, then then you are already going to have to take up your cross. And what I mean by that is that the world is not going to always accept you. Now, that doesn't mean that you actively go out and look to die. It doesn't mean that you actively go out and seek to be persecuted. That's, that's ridiculous. It's stupid. No one should want to be persecuted. But at the same time, we realize that our commitment to Christ may bring about certain difficulties. So if we're still willing to to take on those difficulties, then we're showing and expressing the love of God as being prim- primary in our lives. So the primacy of our love for God, that's the main message. So I wouldn't get too caught up on the details. Put God in, in the front of your life, be saved, and then, hey, listen, you're going to be fine. Yeah, yeah there's going to be crosses that are going to come your way. There's going to be problems that come your way. But put God first. That's the essence of what Jesus is saying. And with that, we are out of time. And we want to thank you for joining us on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast. This is Brian Chilton saying God bless, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com the opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates the Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under creative commons copyright all rights reserved the opening theme is the song crucified written by John and Michaela Limanis performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.